0: No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead To, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson. Joining me this week on the program is Nobody. Uh, this week I wanted to look at uh, the ins and outs of exhuming a body, mostly the out of getting it out, and then the in of putting it back in. Uh, you'll find it's a fairly straightforward cut-and-dry process, but before we get into that, I wanted to do my usual spiel of things to say first and foremost, thank you for listening, it's always wild that anybody in their right mind would take the time to listen to this, especially given the state of the world these days, and as always, um, well yeah, no, just thank you, that's all I want to say is that, uh, I appreciate somebody out there listening and uh, being curious at all about this. Maybe it's because they think I'm nuts and they want to hear more from me as I gradually slide into madness. Or maybe they just have a passing fascination with the fact that we're all going to die someday and that we don't really talk about it. But point is, either way, I appreciate you. Um, if you've got questions, comments, thoughts, feedback, concern, whatever, uh, send me a note at you're dead 2com at gmail.com, y-o-u-r-e-d-e-a-d-t-o-o at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter or Instagram, you're dead too. Uh, same spelling. I don't know why I keep having to do that all the time. It is worth noting, everything I have said about the coronavirus has been wrong. Like, I, week to week, anytime I open my big fat mouth about it, I am quite chagrined to find that, uh, give it I don't know, 24 hours to update, and I will inevitably be proven wrong, so hopefully my sense of doom and gloom over this is, um, I don't know, proven wrong like anything else, but um, last week I had mentioned that, you know, it seemed like numbers were leveling off a bit, Uh, maybe it's not this huge cause for alarm, and I seemed pretty comfortable with it, only to uh, basically have that blow up in my face, and... It basically has just spread everywhere now except for Antarctica it's on all six continents it's made its way to the US with uh, unimpeded progress here we are with people in the Americas uh, testing positive for it and um, limitation on the resources that we would normally have due to the current administration's practice of defunding things for political (sighs) whatever anyway, point is um, it's not good and it might get worse. And, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. I, I have no control over it. This is a little bit different than a meteor striking from outer space, but it is not unlike that in that I have no control over it whatsoever. All you can do is be safe. Uh, I have a big beard and I have not shaved it yet. I probably should. Uh, But I still haven't done so. I also don't have any face masks. Maybe I should buy some. I've heard varying reports on whether or not they're actually effective. I know that I am somebody who touches my face habitually, so I'm pretty much screwed anyway. Uh, But I don't mean to sound doom and gloom. I just, there's no, uh, I can't get around the fact that I just seem to be on the wrong side of whatever lens through which we're looking here. Uh, Maybe I've got shit sources. Hmm, I'm perfectly willing to cop to that. I'm not really looking at, um, well, I mean, I try to get it from, I'm not going to start swaging my sources here. Point is, I'm open to new facts. I am apparently not hearing the right ones because whenever I seem to take a position, the winds of change blow it in the other direction. So, please don't get any disaster preparedness <laughs> emergency from me. But I'm curiously and cautiously watching developments here and assuming eventually this is going to continue to spread. So uh, maybe that's our way of safeguarding against it in the future is that uh, me being concerned about it means nothing's going to happen. So uh, fingers crossed, I guess? Question mark? I'm sorry. Also worth noting, uh, one of the stories that got sent to me this week uh, was that Germany's top courts uh, paved the way for assisted suicide. Uh, basically that in their procedures for court cases and right to die, that Germany has essentially found that uh, individuals have a right to, quote, self-determined suicide, including the freedom to take one's own life and to enlist organized services provided by third parties to do so, which uh, we're struggling with that here in America. Um, Bodily autonomy is something that has been kind of – insidiously hijacked by, uh, vague arguments about, well, again, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus for this, it's, the fact of the matter is, it's a weird, touchy subject, and people have very strong opinions about it, and it's very hard to talk about it without getting into some kind of abstract, uh, uncomfortable dialogue about it, because, frankly, People don't like the thought of people they love wanting to die, but if you talk to people who have experienced long, protracted, painful deaths, yeah, they're not doing this because it's fun. It's, uh, if you go back to episode, I think, three, when I had Annie on, she talks about a relative of hers wanting to seek out uh, assisted suicide and uh, right-to-die laws, and while Oregon is a leading state in the U.S., we still have a long way to go as far as bodily autonomy. It it comes back to the idea of you can't force somebody to donate blood, but we are all obligated to exist in this body until it extinguishes. At what point does the Refusal to let somebody die become cruel, you know, suffering, and uh, it makes me think of the uh, the patient in, I believe it was Japan, who was exposed to massive amounts of radiation and was kept alive much longer than he should have been. He just wanted to die, and he was uh, inadvertently tortured as a result of it. It's there is this weird, and I say weird, in that it's uh, you know unusual to talk about. It. There's this this ill-defined delineation of quality of life and it's just, it's worth noting that Germany has recognized, okay, this is something that people have the right to self determined suicide or euthanasia that provided the right circumstances there are legal process to go through and of course if you're a fool like I am and you start reading the comments to get people's uh, take on it because don't, don't, don't don't read the comments, don't ever read the comments, That's, that's a it's a horrible reminder. But you quickly get the examples of, well, what about when this circumstance comes up? And what about, uh, what, uh, how are we supposed to decide like, whose jurisdiction is it? Like, yeah, there's always going to be somebody with some what about case. I'm so tired of what aboutism. Here's one thing uh, the Germans are very efficient and they have many forms and paperwork. This is what they do. There will be uh, cases, there will be Uh, precedent set. There will be extrapolation based on logic. This is what the German people do. They are very organized. This is what they do. Um, Much love to my German people. I don't mean to be disparaging. I just... Accents are so fun to do. I'm so sorry. But yeah, it's not meant to just be like... (laughs) You can hear how frustrated I get when I speak so casually. The intention behind the ruling is not to suggest that we just start handing out shotguns and cyanide pills to anybody over the age of 60 and say, here you go, have at it. It's more so the notion that um, should you be suffering from a protracted or terminal illness and you feel that the quality of life is such that it, it's determined that you view a quick and painless death to be more beneficial than a protracted painful one, you would have the right to commit suicide, that it's not... Something to be taken frivolous, frivolously and carelessly—that it's it's something that you should be handling with grave concern and the sanctity of life. That this is uh, similar to arguments that are made about abortion. I don't think anybody's super stoked about it, but the legality of it is such that I don't think you're doing anyone any favors by punishing those who seek it out. But again, I'll get off my soapbox. But if you've got thoughts about it, if you want to tell me, I'm an ass for making up. Uh, poorly worded arguments for or against, please let me know. That's what the internet's here for, is to tell you you're wrong. So, let me know. Uh, With that, I'll stop being pithy and I'll just jump right into Exhuming a Body. Alright, so, Exhuming a Body. Here we go. Let's get into it. It's kind of an, an, well... No, it's very unnerving, the thought of disturbing a grave. I have, uh, in the deeper investigations I've done into funereal practices um, in previous episodes, or relocating cemeteries or relocating places of internment, I have done some previous reading into this, and it's been uh, fascinating. And, yeah, uncomfortable, but also practical, and a matter of necessity that we have the ability to exhume a body. It's not often done, but it happens way more often than people think. I got a lot of information for today's episode from a Vox article by Eleanor Cummins, uh, published October 30th of 2019, that really goes through some great detail about it. She cites particular examples of uh, John Dillinger. And his final resting place, as well as uh, not Salvador, although Salvador Dali did have a separate incident. uh, That was not part of that particular article. Let's see, the actual article is here Exhuming Bodies Uh, What Lies Beneath by Eleanor Cummins, published on Vox. But um, this is something that I have stumbled across in my own course of existence here through. The plethora of true crime documentaries—it's often brought up of exhuming a body for DNA evidence and what that means. I'm always kind of uh, morbidly fascinated with. Well, so what's you know they kind of just mention it and they talk about the logistics a little bit of legality and practicality of getting access to a body or getting next of kin to sign off on it, but there's never really a a granular look at what actually happens or what goes on. So in order to do so, I thought I would talk about a bit more of the um, practical steps of it. So I did talk a bit about it in the episode on relocating graves or a cemetery. Basically, that's more of just a practical matter of transporting things from A to B and how to do that reverently and respectfully for actually exhuming a body and intentionally, we need this one dug up, how do we get it? Um, obviously, there's objectives objections to it. Uh, Native American culture, it's considered uh, very disrespectful. Uh, Jewish culture, rabbis very rarely uh, offer any kind of permission to do so, although um, relocation of a burial to Israel is considered a, a very uh acceptable reason to have done so. Uh, Islam, similarly, is particularly prohibitive in regard to um, exhuming a grave, uh, basically requiring that there, there be no semblance of humanness left in there, as long as it's basically just dirt and a box. They're more okay with it, but again, I don't mean to speak for any particular group of religion. Uh, and Christians, similarly, if there's the objection to the notion of whether or not a person can be resurrected, um, and I talked a bit about that in the um, Cremation episode that it was viewed as sacrosanct or a punishment, a way to deny somebody the resurrection of the body by destroying the body. So, why do we do this? Why do we dig up people who are otherwise in their final resting place? Um, The dead have a right to be undisturbed. The dead do have rights in at least America. Uh, Other places in the world, they may have more or less. Um, But particularly in America, I do know that. It is a crime in most, if not all states, to disturb a grave. Uh, Desecration of a grave is a crime. But the reasons for exhuming a body typically fall under one of three reasons, which are either uh, an ongoing criminal case, a genealogical study, or identification of a body. So if you are needing to—and they really— in essence, come down to the same thing, is that you need material from that grave or from that person in order to find out more information. I mean, that's what it comes down to, is that something we need is buried with that person. We have to go down there and get it. Um, Previously, up until the advent of modern science, it was to determine um, cause of death or type of injury, or to determine whether or not somebody had something with them. But since the advent of the uh, coding of the human genome and looking at DNA structure, we have been able to basically extract information from a very, very small viable samples of DNA left that uh, you can go down, dig somebody up, get some amount of measurable material, and basically reinter them and go from there. Uh, the difficulty is in the unspoken practicality of burying a body. So in the previous deeper dives into funeral practices and uh, caskets and coffins, uh, I talked a bit about what happens with the actual box that you're buried in. In many cases... the beginnings of the process are very similar in that uh, if you have a body and you know where it is, it's probably in a cemetery so what you do is you get a backhoe and you remove the level of topsoil in the way of the grave and from there it becomes unique. So depending on how the person was buried, that's where you're gonna have an issue with what you're gonna be dealing with in the grave itself. If there is a concrete liner which I've talked about previously, there is a higher likelihood of things staying more or less in order. Embalming also helps that, but it's not a guarantee. Um, if you're using any kind of a biodegradable or environmentally friendly casket or vessel, the idea there, or the hope, is that it quickly becomes part of the Earth again, that... Uh, the life cycle of natural course is that it's broken down and uh, composted and becomes part of the soil and, you know, ash to ash, dust to dust from all things which we return, you know, you want to have this happen uh, quickly and without incident. If you have been, if your body is buried in a cemetery and there is a concrete liner that prevents... A lot of the water from getting through, and a lot of the natural elements from getting to you. Uh, similarly, the more durable and sturdy the 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 vessel is, the the casket, that's actually going to be uh, a real determining factor. Uh, grave liners are an important part of whether or not something is going to be able to uh, cause further decay and destruction to the body. Um, embalming, as I said. With the chemical process, I don't think I've actually talked about embalming in depth, but the intent is to basically preserve the body and create the illusion of normality for a funeral service so that a person doesn't look particularly, you know, dead, in quotes. While it can certainly preserve somebody who has been interred, it's not a guarantee and you'll have various stages of decomposition as, uh, depending on the timing of which you you engage in this. Most oftentimes exhumations are done in summer, simply because that's when the soil is most uh, pliable and you're able to get to it. Certainly here in Minnesota, you're basically dealing with frozen ground nine months out of the year. That's just that's what happens. If people are not cremated, they're kept in cold storage until it's time for the actual burial and then they're interred in the ground uh you know if the ground is frozen yeah you can try to crack it with a backhoe but for the practicality of it and the the uh sisyphean task of digging through frozen ground people oftentimes just wait until summer because that's when the ground is available when it comes to actually uh dealing with what's inside the casket there are five general stages of decomposition there's uh Well, here, let me look at the actual terms here. Overall, they are fresh, bloat, active decomposition, advanced decomposition, and skeletal decay. But let me look at the article here from Ms. Cummins. Uh, Here we go. Corpses typically pass through five stages of decomposition. Fresh, when cells begin to burst. Uh, Bloat, when pent-up gases cause the body to expand and turn from uh, flesh-colored to green to black. Uh, Then active decomposition, in which tissues turn to liquid and uh, maggots and other organisms eat what they can. Advanced decomposition, where hardier uh, bugs tackle tendons. And ultimately, skeletal decay, where bones begin to disintegrate. So even embalming, injecting a corpse with preservatives like formaldehyde, is, quote, only a temporary deterrent end quote, says George Kelder, executive director of the New Jersey State Funeral Directors Association. Uh, Following in that article is, disinterments typically start the same way. A backhoe quickly clears the topsoil, but each exhumation is unique depending on the condition of the corpse. Uh, Quote, again, Rob Groff here, you just don't know what you're going to see until you're there. Uh, Cold weather can limit the growth of hungry bacteria. Fatty tissue can form grave wax which mummifies the body in a soapy substance, and in rare cases an embalmed body may look similar to the day that it was buried even if decades have passed. That's where hardware comes in. Eco-friendly caskets like those made from bamboo or cardboard disintegrate quickly. Wooden caskets from mahogany to pine last a bit longer, but they still erode. In those cases, the disinterment crew will have to collect any human remains and place them in a new, smaller vessel for reburial. But if someone was buried in a metal casket, typically uh, steel, copper, or bronze, they may be able to move the box directly from one grave to another. Caskets are rarely placed directly in the ground. Graveliners prevent the earth from collapsing in on the remains, but they're not waterproof and offer a little protection from the elements. Concrete vaults are pricier, but they can prevent soil, water, and other invaders from seeping in. Concrete vaults also make exhumations easier because the crew can pull the entire vault out of the earth and easily plop it elsewhere. Uh, editorial note here, the term plop it in an article about exhuming bodies is particularly unnerving. Um... In an exhumation, most funeral directors are crossing their fingers. The body is in a concrete vault, Kelter says. Um, But in some cases, any evidence of a body has disappeared entirely. Um, Law professor Tanya Marsh uh, from Wake Forest University says... I have talked to people who have been involved in disturbance of older cemeteries. There's no intact casket. There's no intact skeleton. They can find the casket handles because they're metal. It's just discolored soil. So that was something I actually talked about in the Relocation of the Cemetery episode, that basically it's a bit of a guessing game. You don't have clear uh, indication. It's just you, you dig down and there's just more soil. It's just discolored a bit. Um, The inherent unpredictability makes exhumation an emotional process. The professionals uh, try to be discreet in doing so. Um, Goff says uh, secretly is a bad word to use, but they'll have a lot of vehicles or potentially tents set up because cemeteries are a public place, and the last thing a funeral professional wants to do is put anyone in an uncomfortable position. Uh, The same is true for family members. Legally, they can attend a disinterment, but funeral directors often advise them against it. Again, you're you're, oh, you're opening a casket. It's not going to be pleasant. Uh, you oftentimes will have police present for criminal cases, or uh, if there's an ongoing investigation, uh, you'll have a funeral director present. It is possible to be there as a family member, but it's again highly discouraged. Let's see what else did we have here in my notes. Yeah, legal internments are carefully controlled to ensure respect for human remains. In the U.S., when someone's buried, courts presume the person wants to stay buried unless he or she specified otherwise. Most states require special permits to disinter a body. This allows the court to ensure the chain of custody is transparent and the wishes of the deceased are represented. As we were previously saying, the dead have rights. Um, what else did we come across here? For okay, yeah, Exhuming a Body, Reasons and Methods. There is a website here, uh, a blog called com, that goes through the process of relocating a body, and I think I had actually uh, come here in previous episodes to the same website before, but looking at the cost of it, it's anywhere from a minimum of $750 to 5250 depending on the uh, age of the grave, the terrain that it's been buried in and the style in which it was buried. So basically what kind of liner and what kind of casket it was, um, not cheap. That's incredibly expensive. That is insanely expensive for most people in the practical day and age. We've said before, funerals are expensive. Hopefully people have savings for them, but oftentimes they're covered through the cost of, or through the proceeds of insurance. But with, uh, disinterring a grave, that's a lot of money to essentially throw at something that you're 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 getting no return for. It's you know, you're just moving something from A to B or exhuming a body and then you have to rebury it. You can't just like, well, we exhumed it and here's the body and then uh, well, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, here it goes into the wind. No, you have to put the body back in the ground somewhere. The the digging and the burying and well, you know, reburying, that's where the cost comes in. So, you know, don't approach lightly, I guess is what I'm saying. The other thing I wanted to talk about that uh, is one of the reasons this becomes such a fascinating thing for me is that there was actually, particularly, well, I'm just going to read from it here. The Cadaver Synod. <laughs> this is something I was keyed into on Wikipedia that is just. A fascinating glimpse into the history of the Catholic Church. Um, as I've said before, I've got this fascination with the the comic book aspect of it, the the uh, the trappings of popes and power and rules and secrets. This is insanity. The Cadaver Synod, um, also called the Cadaver Trial, is the name commonly given to the posthumous ecclesiastical trial of Pope Formosus, who himself had been deceased about seven months. In the Basilica of Saint John Lateran in Rome in January of 897, so over a thousand years ago, uh, the trial was conducted by Pope Stephen VI, the successor to Formosus's successor, Pope Boniface VI. Uh, Stephen had the corpse exhumed and brought to the papal court for judgment. He accused Formosus of perjury and having acceded to the papus elite. Oh no, 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 here we go accused him of perjury and having ascended to the papacy illegally. At the end of the trial, Formosus was pronounced guilty and his papacy retroactively declared null. Basically, this pope was so incensed at his predecessor's ability to have been pope that he dug up his corpse and put it on trial. That's how upset he was about this. Uh, In remote context, the Cadaver Synod and uh, related events took place during a period of political instability in Italy. This period, which lasted from the middle of the 9th century to the middle of the 10th century, was marked by a rapid succession of pontiffs. Often these brief papal reigns were the result of political machinations of local Roman factions about which few sources survive. Uh, Formosus became bishop of uh, Porto Santa Rufina in 864 during the pontificate of Pope Nicholas I. He carried out missionary activity of the Bulgarians and was so successful that they requested for him uh, for their bishop. And let's skip ahead to the weird stuff here. Yeah, 875, shortly after Charles Charles the Bald's imperial coronation, Formosus fled Rome in fear of then-Pope John VIII. A few months later, in 876, at a synod in Santa Maria Rotunda, John VIII issued a series of accusations against Formosus and some of his associates. He asserted that Formosus had corrupted the mind of the Bulgarians, quote, "...so that, so long as he was alive, they would not accept any other bishop from the Apostolic See." End quote. That he and his fellow conspirators had attempted to usurp the papacy papacy, from John, And finally, that he had deserted his uh, see in Porto and was conspiring against the salvation of the state and of our beloved Charles the Bald. Formosus and his associates were excommunicated. In 879, at another council held at Troyes, John may have confirmed the excommunications. He also legislated more generally against those who plunder ecclesiastical goods. According to the 10th century author, Auxilius of Naples, Formosus was also present at this council. Auxilius says he begged the bishops for their forgiveness and in return for lifting the excommunication, swore an oath to remain a layman for the rest of his life to never again enter Rome and make no attempts to resume his former see at Porto. The story is doubtful. Another description of the synod does not mention Formosus's presence and said, says that John confirms excommunication. Um, here we go. Probably around January of 897, Stephen VI ordered that the corpse of his predecessor, Formosus, be removed from its tomb and brought to the papal court for judgment. With the corpse propped up on a throne, a deacon was appointed to answer for the deceased pontiff. Formosus was accused of transmigrating sees in violation of canon law, of perjury, and of serving as a bishop while actually a layman. Eventually, the corpse was found guilty. Uh, sources say that after the corpse was stripped of its papal vestments, Stephen then cut off the three fingers of the right hand that it had used in life for blessings, next formally invalidating all of Formosus's acts and ordinations, including the ordination of Stephen VI as bishop of Anni, The body was finally interred in a graveyard for foreigners, only to be dug up once again, tied to weights, and cast into the Tiber River. Wow. Uh, The macabre spectacle turned public opinion in Rome against Stephen. Rumors circulated that Formosus' body, after washing up on the banks of the Tiber, had begun to perform miracles. A public uprising led to Stephen being uh, deposed and imprisoned. While in prison in July or August of 897, he was strangled. Okay, so in December of 897, Pope Theodore II convened a synod that annulled the Cadaver Synod, rehabilitated Formosus and ordered that his body, which had been recovered from the Tiber, to be reburied in St. Peter's Basilica in pontifical vestments. In 898, John IX also nullified the Cadaver Synod, convening two synods, one in Rome and one in Ravenna, which confirmed the findings of Theodore II's Synod, ordering the acta of the Cadaver Synod destroyed excommunicated seven card—no, excommunicated seven cardinals who were involved in the Cadaver Synod and prohibited any future trial of a dead person. So, as I said, this was something that I would see time and again on articles about what are crazy facts from history that people don't know or, like, what's a crazy historical thing that you're not taught in school. The trial of a dead man is crazy. Uh, you should see the painting by Jean-Paul Lorenz, uh, Le Pape Formos et Etienne Seventh, Pope Formosus and Stephen Seventh of 1870. It's literally, it is a dead body on a throne in papal vestments on trial. It's insane. It is, for lack of a better word, super hardcore metal. It's the kind of stuff you would see on a metal band's album cover. It's some straight-up Iron Maiden stuff. Um, not often that you have that happen, but they set a precedent before the year 1000 no more digging up dead people and putting them on trial. So that is uh, that is the more practical look at exhuming a body for this week and uh, kind of the the nuts and bolts of it it's like I said it's it's more about getting from point A to point B and the fact that, the point of putting a person in the ground is that they eventually return to the earth and that it's most unpleasant when we do everything that we can to preserve them and prevent that from happening so <laughs> as is often the case with this uh deal with it you know that's just this is the the information that we have out there we're not talking about this and this is how this is what happens with death we don't it's not that we don't plan for it, but in the absence of the forming of plans, this is what comes as a matter of consequence. It's like an evolutionary accident in that all of these steps take place and then we're here at the moment of hinge. And it's... it's. I think of it like... Having the stress dream of not preparing for a test and then sitting down at the test and saying, All right, here goes, and then just trying to take the test. That's that's what it is. That that lack of preparation meets opportunity. What do we do? So this is this is why I'm fascinated by this stuff, but it's heinous, horrible stuff. It's it's the reminder of how physical and how frail we are. It's something that's just ugh. Whew. So hopefully I haven't squicked out too many people. Um, Or maybe you came here because you wanted to be squicked out. I'm not going to judge. But the point is I'm always grateful that anybody ever wants to listen to this. Uh, Tune in next week for whatever fresh hell the world brings us, and maybe I'll be dead wrong about the coronavirus again. Talk to you then.